Alleluia, Christ is risen and ascended. The Lord is risen and ascended indeed. Alleluia. Heavenly, gracious, and loving Father, release thy spirit from heaven to open our hearts to the truth of thy word and the faith of thy son's church. May what is of thee take root in our hearts and bear forth much fruit in our lives. And what is not of thee, O Lord, may it just be scattered to the winds. We pray thee, O Lord, to bless our time together, our fellowship and our conversation and our learning. And we thank thee for this gift and opportunity. Through Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord. Amen. Okay. Uh, one thing I was sharing last night at Foyer Group, um, one is, is something which I call uh, the, the year 500. The year 500. And it's about a man who lives in the year 500, and he travels to the future, to 2014. And, of course, in the year 500, we're being simplistic a little bit, but essentially the church was one, wherever it was around the world. And so if that man came looking for the church he knew in the year 500, and he was looking for it in 2014, he would, of course, look for the ordained ministry that he knows from the year 500. He would look for a church that, of course, holds the Bible of the year 500. He would look for a church that professed the creeds of the year 500. He would look for a church that um, submitted itself to the ecumenical councils of the church as they were in the year 500. He would look for a church that worshipped on the Lord's Day as they did in the year 500. And he would look for sacraments that he knew in the year 500. And so uh, in this little teaching that I do, which is not the teaching today, just uh, I'll do this more in depth at some point. Um, but if he comes forward to today and he were to uh, visit, let's say, the Roman Catholic Church, he would find many things that were familiar to him from the year 500, many things that were the same. But there would also be some things that were confusing to him, things that he would not recognize in the faith uh, uh, from his church in the year 500. And I'll just give you some brief examples, because this is not the focus for today. But I'll just give you some brief examples. Uh, that is, uh, if he went and visited the Roman Catholic Church and they were to explain the level of authority that the Bishop of Rome had, the claims to actual jurisdiction over the whole church, and uh, claims to infallibility, that would be very unfamiliar to him. He would know from the year 500 a, uh, a bishop in Rome who was more of a father figure within the church but not one who claimed jurisdiction and actual authority over the whole church. You've got to watch your back around here. And, uh, uh, and he certainly would not know, it would be very foreign to him, uh, if we were talking about papal infallibility. Okay, That would be unknown to him from the year 500. Also things like the doctrine of purgatory. Not the concept of not the concept of purgation, but the concept, but the actual doctrine of purgatory would be foreign to him. Uh, even the teaching transubstantiation, not again, 
not the belief that Christ is present in the Eucharist in a very special way. He would know that. He'd be very familiar with that. But the whole understanding of transubstantiation and its, its philosophy uh, and its application as a dogma in the church would be very alien to him. Well, maybe you're from the year 500. And see, you're, you're perfect for this. Yeah, transubstantiation. Okay. Infallibility is the Roman Catholic uh, dogma that the Pope, under very certain circumstances, can speak ex cathedra, meaning from the chair, the chair of authority in Rome, without error. Without error. And certain matters of faith and morals. And so that was unknown in the, in the early church. The early church was much more collegial than... Hierarchy. It was hierarchical, but hierarchy meant something different. Hierarchy back then did not necessarily mean levels of equality. It wasn't a top-down, but a conciliar hierarchy. Uh, transubstantiation is the Roman Catholic dogma that, uh, that the bread and wine becomes, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, the body and blood of Christ, but that the bread and wine no longer exists. It goes to naught, as they used to say. And, it, and what is present now in substance is the body and blood of Jesus. And um, uh, in the early church, they truly believed that the consecrated bread and wine, well, bread and wine, was a participation in the body and blood of Christ. So to partake of the consecrated bread, the consecrated wine, was to share in the body and blood of Christ. The Roman Catholic dogma goes a step further and says, this is how it happens. It explains it in philosophical terms based on Thomas Aquinas' theology, which was based on the uh, uh, philosophy of Aristotle. Um, and someday I can go even deeper in that. But the, the kind of the funny way of teaching it is that um, a friend of mine told me this years ago in the Roman Catholic Church, there's three things you have to know about the Holy Eucharist. We, like the early church, know that it's an unexplainable mystery. It cannot be explained. Number two, we've explained it. And number three, it's now a dogma of the church, therefore you must believe it. So that's where, that would be very alien to the man from the year 500. He would know that. Bread and wine in transubstantiation, the substance of bread and the substance in the Roman Catholic Church. They say it goes, the substance of bread is gone. No, not just when you eat it, when the consecration takes place. Yeah, right. Uh, and what's that? Well, I do, actually, I don't want to get off on transubstantiation because, I mean, I could do the whole teaching with substance and accidents and all that, but that's not what today's about. So I, I, we'll, we'll take that up another time. We'll talk about transubstantiation, consubstantiation, transentiation, real presence, and all that wonderful, fun stuff that Christians have, with great love, killed each other over uh, throughout the centuries. And uh, um, so we'll talk, about, we'll talk about that. So there would be things, for example, that all the clergy have to be celibate. That would be un, uh, unfamiliar to the man from the year 500, that the Pope had jurisdiction over the church, 
the dogma of purgatory, the dogma of transubstantiation, the concept that one has to merit salvation. You know, uh, this would all be alien. Okay. However, if that same man says, oh, gosh, I, I hear the church isn't one anymore in the year 2014. That's crazy. I wonder how many different divisions there are. You don't want to know, buddy, right? Uh, and so he says, but I went to the Roman Catholic Church, and there was many things that I recognized, but many things I had never heard of before. So, okay, so then the same man comes out, and he goes in to uh, um, another church, a, a more evangelical Protestant church. There would be many things that would be very alien to him. For example, they, if they said to him, we believe that baptism is symbolic, that one is saved by their profession of Christ, and baptism is but a public witness of what God has done inwardly. No grace is bestowed in baptism. Nothing actually happens. It's a testimony. He'd say, what? And then if they went on, well, you know, it's like Holy Communion, you know, which we do a few times a year. It's symbolic. It's not truly a participation in the body and blood of Christ. This would be alien to him, alien to him. If they, we say, well, I need to talk to your priest about this. Oh, we don't have priests. Does the bishop know about this? That's okay. We don't have bishops. <laughs> you know, we don't have bishops, priests, and deacons. Well, what do you have? Well, we have pastors. Well, who ordained them? What bishops ordained them? Oh, they weren't ordained by bishops. All of this would be radically alien to the man from the year 500. And on and on and on. We could go with the sacraments. Oh, well, uh, what about uh, Holy Eucharist on Sunday? Well, we do that a few times a year. But what we're going to do is get together and we're going to uh, have preaching and uh, some teaching and some praise music, right? And, and he'd be like, well, but it's the Lord's Day. Holy Communion is what we celebrate on the Lord's Day, right? So many things would be alien to him. One of the reasons I chose after uh, a lengthy study at one time in my life um, regarding many different Christian traditions and denominations. One of the reasons that um, I believe God was leading me to uh, Orthodox Anglicanism was uh, this very idea, that the man from the year 500, if he were to show up today at Holy Trinity, um, the basic outline of the Mass, the Holy Eucharist, would be exactly what he knew from the year 500. If we were talking about ecumenical councils like Nicaea and Constantinople and Ephesus and Chalcedon, these would be the councils he was familiar with as well. Uh, where in many Protestant churches they don't recognize those councils and in Rome they have 21 ecumenical councils. So he would be able to relate to that. When he saw the creed, he would recognize the Nicene creed and say, ah, that's what I know. Uh, our understanding of baptism and Holy Communion would be very familiar to him. So when it comes to the Bible, when it came to the creed, the sacraments, the faith, I mean the creed, the councils, and the faith of the church, when it came to uh, the sacraments and the worship of the church, when it came to the ordained ministry of the church, of bishop, priests, and deacons being ordained by bishops going back to the time of Christ and the apostles, 
all of that uh, he would recognize as being identical to what he knew in the year 500. But then if he were to say, well, I went to one church and there was many things that I was comfortable with that I knew, but there were many things that had been added. So, Father Michael, tell me what in Orthodox Anglicanism, as you call it, whatever that is, right? he wouldn't be familiar with the name, um, what have you added to these essentials? What, besides these things that we've just named, what else has been added? And I would be able to say, uh, in Orthodox Anglicanism, nothing, nothing has been added. And if he said, oh, okay, so you're, maybe you're not with the, those churches that added. We, I went to another church, too, and they had deleted a lot of the things that are very... I mean, they don't have priests. They don't have mass. They don't have the creed. They, they said the Eucharist was symbolic, right? And so what have you deleted from the, the essentials? And I'd be able to say nothing. And this spoke a lot to me when I was, many years ago now, um, searching uh, near the end of college, uh, my college days, searching for um, uh, where I believed God was calling me. And so why the person from the year 500? Because by the year 500, um, things that God had gifted the church with had solidified by then. So not only were the books of the uh, New Testament written, um, but the canon, the official list, was solidified by the year 500. The creeds were solidified by the year 500. Um, The apostolic ministry, uh, the the theology of the sacraments. So in that age of development, um, uh, you know, these things had, uh, um, had developed by then. Um, and so that's why Lancelot Andrews, one of the great Anglican writers of the 17th century, wrote, and I'm paraphrasing here, I left all my notes at home and I apologize. And so next week, because we're going to do part two of this, I'm going to try to remember to bring all my notes. Um, so I have this quote all ready for you. Um, but Lancelot Andrew, and I'm paraphrasing, said, uh, and it, it's called one, two, three, four, five. That's how you can remember it. He says, do you have it in there? Oh, oh, he may have the exact quote. That's what I call a student. Look at, oh, excuse me, I have the exact quote. And uh, you get an A plus if you uh, have the exact quote. Okay. Um, and so what he said is the one canon of Scripture. So canon meaning the official list of the books of the Bible. Okay. The one canon of Scripture the two testaments of the uh, Old and New, the Old and New Testaments. The three creeds, that is the Nicene Creed, the Creed of St. Athanasius, which is more of a teaching creed, we'll say it on Trinity Sunday, and the Apostles' Creed, the Western Baptismal Creed. The three creeds, the four early ecumenical councils, so Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, and Chalcedon, which give voice and articulate fully um, the church's belief in the Holy Trinity and in the incarnation of Jesus. And he said, and then the, the uh, writings of the fathers from the first five centuries of the church uh, during this age, 
these establish the boundaries of our faith, which he goes on to say is not really our faith anyway, because we've never claimed our, claimed our own faith. This is the faith of the church, the early church. Okay. And so um, that always had a profound effect. But if Anglicanism claims to uphold the same scriptures, that is the Bible, of the undivided Catholic Church of the first few centuries, and claims to uphold the very uh, same sacraments in worship life of the undivided Catholic Church of the first few centuries, and upholds the same creeds and councils of the early Catholic Church in the first few centuries, and upholds the uh, same apostolic ministry of bishop, priest, and deacon uh, ordained by bishops going back to Christ and the apostles of the early, church, early Catholic Church of the first few centuries, then we are what? If you have the scriptures, the sacraments, the worship life, the creeds, the faith, the councils, and the ministry of the early Catholic Church, and you're presenting it in today's world, then you must be Catholic. Catholic. And so we are Catholic by nature. This is who we are. Anglicanism has never claimed that Henry VIII started a new church. Okay? Uh, we maintain the same uh, orders of ministry, sacraments, creeds, councils, worship, uh, and most of all, scriptures of the early church, the early Catholic church. And so we do not claim to be, in the sense that others are, a, uh, in the States, a Protestant, American Protestant denomination. We say we have no faith of our own. Now, of course, some have claimed we have no faith, but uh, we have no faith of our own. We have the faith of the undivided Catholic Church. We have no creeds of our own or councils of our own. We have those of the early Catholic Church. We have no sacraments or worship of our own. We have those of the early Catholic Church. And we have no ministry of our own. We have that of the early Catholic Church. So we've never claimed to have anything of our own, but rather to proclaim, celebrate, rejoice in, share, and present to the modern world that which has been the foundation of the church from the beginning. And so this is part of what I mean when I say the Catholic nature. We are, uh, in, our, uh, in our identity, we are the Catholic Church. Okay? Um, technically speaking, people will say, oh, are you an Anglican priest? And often, unless I'm feeling particularly honorary, uh, I'll say yes, because I know what they mean. But technically, there's no such animal as an Anglican priest. There is simply the one ordained ministry of the early church. Bishops, priests, and deacons ordained by the uh, bishops going back to Christ and the apostles. And so technically, I am a Catholic priest who serves in the Anglican tradition. As a priest down the street, Father Michael, his last day today, by the way, in Marlboro, so say a little prayer for him and for the church family, uh, is a Catholic priest who serves in the Roman uh, tradition. Just as Eastern Orthodox priests 
our Catholic priests serving in the Eastern tradition. Yeah. Yeah, that I, I can do that briefly. That is probably, in one sense, the, the, the most difficult one to compare and contrast. Because in many ways, of all the other traditions in the world, they can make these very same claims. Um, where in almost any other, Roman Catholicism, um, Lutheranism to a lesser degree, but still Presbyterianism, etc., etc., there would be additions or deletions from what this man knew in the year 5500. But very little will have changed from uh, what he knew in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, so essentially, the differences uh, in, between small o Orthodox Anglicanism and Orthodoxy with a big O, Eastern Orthodoxy, the differences are really secondary matters. So for example, they have a requirement in their canons that their bishops must be chosen from among the celibate clergy. But what they say is, look, that's a canonical requirement. It's not a matter of faith. That's something that could be changed, okay? They also have a canonical requirement that their clergy, if they're to be married, if they feel called to be married, have to be married before they're ordained. So technically speaking, it's not true that an Orthodox priest can marry. It's true that an, a married Orthodox man can become a priest <laughs> or a deacon, okay? Um, but again, that's a canonical requirement. They feel that that's what's best for the, the church. Although I always wonder about these poor guys, well, I'm going to ordain you next week. And, you know, I'm not even dating yet. What do I, you know? <laughs> Excuse me, ma'am? <laughs> what are you doing for the next 50 years? Um, Want to marry a priest? Um, and so that's a canonical, a canonical thing. Another big difference, they, they have the best baklava. <laughs> you, you know, I mean, just hands down. We, I mean, we couldn't make baklava to save our lives, you know, as Anglicans, you know. So, um, but so... We do, and they do not. And that's actually an excellent point, Joan. Thank you for, for bringing that up. And that wasn't always true in Anglicanism. What we said eventually is that, um, that if people believe the essentials, that regardless of what denomination they're worshiping in, if they believe as this man did in the year 500, um, that we're really all baptized into one church. So we can receive from, you know, they can come and receive from us. They're holding out to the... Um, the, uh, on the older position, which was this, and I'll try to, as simply as I can, state this, um, because, again, this could be a whole conversation of its own. But in the early church, when um, communion between different parts of the church in the world or even individuals uh, was broken, um, they didn't have big ceremonies where, like, the pope came or the bishop and excommunicated you and... You know, your excuse simply was if there was a breach, if, if I was a, a, a bishop in Ephesus and uh, Praveen is a, a, a bishop in, in uh, Carthage and, um, uh, and he started teaching something 
that was contrary to what the church has always believed, he'd be called to repentance three times. If he refused to repent, then what happens is we would recognize that he has separated himself and his followers from the communion of the church. And so instead of a big ceremony where he's condemned to hell for all eternity, though we're still thinking about that, by the way, uh, uh, um, what would happen is we would say, we're no longer in communion. And since receiving communion together is a celebration of our unity, our communion in the Lord and in the faith, since that's broken, we can't receive communion uh, from each other. Well, this was supposed to absolutely mortify both sides to really want to work at healing the breach um, because communion was taken so very seriously. Uh, and, so, and so the Orthodox would say, we still hold to that because look what's happening in this day and age. Um, you know, denominations and traditions aren't working so seriously on their differences because so many can receive from each other and, it, you know, it's all good, I'm good, you're good, and it's okay. So um, it gives the illusion, they believe, of a false communion together. But that is, in practicality, uh, a very big difference. So uh, it didn't pop into my head, so thank you for stating that. If you're unworthy. In, absolutely. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, St. Paul warns us by the Holy Spirit of receiving unworthily uh, and without being in right relationship with, with God and with the body, that is the church. Um, and so that is part of it uh, too. The way we kind of get around that is, you know, we print in the bulletin, this is what we believe and if you have confessed your sins and you've asked for forgiveness and you believe, as the early church did, that, that this is the body and blood of Christ sacramentally, you may receive. But yes, that's another reason for it. Yeah, absolutely. Correct. Uh, right, because the understanding in the early church was you were in communion with the church throughout the world and throughout time, from the time of Christ and the apostles to the second coming, through your bishop. And so if you came into an Orthodox church, and I was an Eastern Orthodox priest, and you said, oh, I'm visiting here from Marlborough, Massachusetts, and then they would say, oh, that's where Archdeacon Michael McKinnon is. We've heard of him, right? Yeah, I'm sure that's what they would say. And... Uh, <laughs> Tyler's going, yeah, I don't think so. And, uh, uh, right? um, but the first thing they would say is, who, who is your bishop? Right? Who's your father in God? Right? Um, and if you're like, oh, I don't know, that would be very peculiar for an Eastern Orthodox Christian because they, they're very familiar with who their bishop is because through them. What's that? If you were to go to an Eastern church and say you'd like to receive... They would say, well, first, are you Orthodox? And if you said yes, which I think you would have a claim to make, by the way, they then would say, well, who is your bishop? And if you said Donald Harvey, they wouldn't recognize that name. So you wouldn't be allowed to receive. Now, in practice, because Anglicanism is, in many ways, uh, very close to Eastern Orthodoxy, 
in practice, Eastern Orthodox uh, clergy, when their people have gone to areas where there is no Eastern Orthodox presence, have sent their people to Anglican churches, not Roman Catholic churches, but to Anglican churches. Um, and there's always been a special relationship between Anglicans and Eastern Orthodox um, because of that very, uh, that very thing. So, Okay, so, um, so this is what it means to be part of who we are in nature, who we are in nature. In other words, it's not um, uh, Father Michael's church or it's not uh, you know, the Anglican church. Rather, it is the, the church being presented in today's, today's world. Um, and that's what Anglicanism has always tried to maintain. Um, in other words, it's, it's not... You know, in, in most uh, denominations, you, you have a, um, uh, a founder whose theology and writings carry uh, uh, a lot of weight in understanding the scriptures, etc. Okay? Um, and then you also usually have a, a, a synod or a conference whose decisions are considered to be the highest authority. Okay? And then you usually have a confession, which is a statement of faith that's unique to that denomination. So those three things... A particular founder, human founder, whose theological positions and writings carry uh, a lot of weight theologically. Um, secondly, a conference of some sort whose decisions are considered to be the highest authority of that denomination. And then lastly, a statement of faith that is in, at least to some degree, is unique to that denomination and separates them from the other ones. Uh, Anglicanism, unlike our brothers and sisters in other Protestant denominations, has never claimed to have a particular founder. Okay? We, we don't say that because we no longer recognize the Bishop of Rome as having authority over us, that doesn't mean we've left the church. Because for the first seven and a half centuries, he did not have authority over us in the early church. So it was a return, not an innovation. Okay, so we've never claimed a founder. Now I always joke that that's a good thing because for Luther, Lutherans you have Luther, and for Presbyterians you have Calvin, and you know often people are known as Calvinists and Lutherans and Swingli, Swinglians after after Swingli, um, and probably the most uh, um, theological writer we had at the English Reformation was Richard Hooker. So who knows what we would have been called, okay? So praise God, we're not known that way. We're not known that way. Um, so we don't have a particular human founder. We've never claimed one. We uh, do not have a conference that is the ultimate authority in the church. So that, and this is where a lot of people said, uh, you know, in the Episcopal Church, well, uh, what went wrong was sexuality. No, what went wrong was their interpretation of the Bible. And, oh, no, what went wrong was this. And what went, went wrong was that. And I used to say, no, what went wrong was is that the Episcopal Church came to understand itself as an American Protestant denomination. Therefore, the general convention becomes the highest authority. Okay? Um, and so that, that's part of the, the issue there. Um, so we don't have a conference that's the, all conferences 
even like the, all the bishops of the world gathering, are always subject to the scriptures as the word of God and to the uh, faith and practice of the early church. So our conferences can't trump the Bible. Our conferences can't trump the faith of the early church under the Bible. Okay, so we don't trump. No trumping. Okay, and then lastly, we don't have a particular statement that, uh, that defines us differently than other Christian denominations. We say our faith is the early creeds and councils of the church and so forth. So by that definition, we are not a denomination but a tradition of, of the church. So, Christina? Okay. What's that? I don't think you wanted me to ask. No, that's okay. Um, the early, when you talk about the early church fathers, are we assuming that they could not be have any incorrect view of that? Oh no, they. Oh, very sinful, very broken, and no. Absolutely. And that's why it's no individual father or their writings or mother, because there were some mothers in the early church. It's no individual uh, father or writings that are authoritative, but rather the received mind of the church. And what they write has to be in continuity with what has come before them and ultimately in line with Holy Scripture. So it's a tapestry. It wouldn't. I, so when I read Luther, what I say is where Luther is in agreement with those who've come before him and with the earliest church fathers under the authority of Scripture. So when you can trace a, a continuity, then... Because Martin Luther... Right. So whether I'm reading Gregory of Nyssa... Or Martin Luther, what I would say is that um, where they say things that are in continuity with the received mind of the uh, those who've come before us under the authority of Scripture, then I can concur with that and know that it's true. No, it's just whoever's come before you. If I start teaching something that's radically disconnected, let's say I write a book. A, the, a the, theological book. Like C.S. Lewis will be received eventually probably as a father of the church when people are looking back. But it will have to be what he wrote in continuity with what has been received as the mind of the whole church and the Bible throughout the centuries. Not just, so if I start writing now and I start saying, well, you know, I believe that uh, yeah, there's a oneness in God and there's a multiplicity in God, but I don't think the Trinity is the end of that multiplicity. I believe there are several levels uh, of persons within the Godhead. That would, be in, uh, uh, that would not be following what has been the received mind of the church going all the way back. That would be a radical innovation uh, from it, right? Um, and if I write... Um, yes, I believe Jesus is, is God and Lord uh, and, uh, and so forth. But, 
you know, uh, we all eventually become God, not by grace, but like nature. We're becoming slowly gods. And I use scripture to defend that. Then we would look at the mind of the fathers and see, no, the, the mind of the fathers going all the way back would be, we do not become gods by nature, but rather we become like God in Christ by grace. And so what is his by nature becomes ours as a gift, but we never become God. So that would be seen as a radical departure uh, again. And so that's how, uh, how it works. Deacon Bob and then Joan. The, um, um, the process, Christina, I think works uh, something like this, that uh, if one father of one of the early church fathers were to make a statement that in continued dialogue with other fathers turned out not to be accepted, uh, wasn't received more generally, then that statement was essentially filtered out. Uh, right. A good example of that, I think, is Origins that even the devil was subject ultimately to uh, redemption. And uh, that was not an idea that was picked up on, worked on, agreed on uh, by his contemporaries and successors. So that idea essentially was filtered out of the ongoing tradition. Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's a good example. Joan? Yeah. Sometimes, or um, there would be uh, kind of throughout the churches a movement of the Spirit that certain things were considered to be true and certain things not. So when you have someone like Sibelius come along, comes along and, and teaches, yes, there's a oneness of God and a plurality in God, um, but it really isn't three distinct persons. Um, it's uh, really just three faces of one person, you know, kind of revealing, you know, sometimes I'm uh, Ernestine's son, sometimes I'm Father Michael the priest, and sometimes I'm daddy, like to Rebecca and Sarah. Um, and then they would say, look, that's not the understanding of the Trinity that has been received in the Christian communities throughout the world. And this is not what has been the faith proclaimed in every generation going uh, back um, to, to the early church. So it's a, there, there is a, despite all the things that go on, there is this certain continuity in the, in the early church, particularly about things like the Trinity, um, who Jesus is, his cross, his resurrection, whether the resurrection was bodily or just spiritual, for example, is, is answered. Um, and so what we would do is we would say, for example, if something is scriptural uh, and is required of the faith, we receive it as faith. But if, if there's some, um, um, uh, if there's some uh, discrepancy over what is, is meant, then we would look back to see, is what we're teaching in continuity to what the church has received in every age going back? Not just in Rome, not just in Constantinople or in Canterbury, but throughout the, the world going back. So an, an example um, would be if uh, someone said to me, um, well, we believe in, in transubstantiation. It's a dogma. Well, we believe it's only a symbol. What do you believe uh, as an Anglican, Father Michael? And I would say, 
um, I believe what has been believed all the way back. So if I'm going to look at transubstantiation, I'm going to see this as a departure from what was taught. Still related, that idea of he's truly present is there, but it becomes a departure. The idea of sim it being purely symbolic is a radical departure. So you may have a lot of people that believe it, but they're building on blocks that are innovative rather than having that connection to the church in, in every age. Um, and so, and that's a good exercise to end with uh, today. And Johnny, it's good to see you. Um, oh, you found it. A, a, well, A. It took you a long time. Uh, I'll, 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 conclude, I'll conclude with this in a minute. Um, but this is an important exercise, I think. And that is, I'm going to name, at the time of the English Reformation, some changes that came about. And I want you to say whether they were an innovation, something new, like if I were to say, we claim that the Eucharist was purely symbolic, you would say innovation. That's not what the whole church East and West has always believed, right? Um, but if I say uh, a rejection of transubstantiation as a philosophical explanation, but, a uh, but an acceptance that Christ is truly present in a wonderful and mysterious way, you would say, oh, that's a return. Okay, that's what the church has always believed going back all the way to Christ and the apostles. Okay, so here are the changes from the time of the English Reformation. The Bishop of Rome does not have actual jurisdiction over the Catholic Church in that realm. Was that a return or an innovation? Return. The Bishop of Rome did not have jurisdiction over the Catholic Church in that realm for the first seven and a half centuries. And he's never held jurisdiction over the whole church east and west at any period in history, which is a big shock to a lot of people, actually. Okay. We said the clergy can marry. Is that an innovation or a return? It's a return. We said that the Holy Eucharist will be in the language of the people, the vernacular, and not in Latin. Was that an innovation or a return? It was a return. In the early church, again, the, the worship was in the language of the people. We said that the people should be allowed, uh, those who are proper, duly prepared, to receive both the body and the blood of Jesus, not just the body of Christ. Was that an innovation or a return? A return, right? Uh, we said that um, we will uh, only recognize as truly ecumenical those councils of the church which are both biblical and have been received by the whole church east and west as being ecumenical by definition. So we don't recognize the additional ones that are accepted only by the Bishop of Rome. Was that an innovation or a return? It was a return. So do you see where I'm, I'm going with, with this? Okay. Um, is that the English Reformation did not set out to create a new church. It set out to return the present church to the faith, order, practice of the early Catholic Church under the authority of the Bible as God's word. And so, was there a lot of politics involved? Absolutely. Was there a lot of sin involved? Absolutely. Were there some matters of emphasis and other things that were right and some things that were dreadfully wrong? Absolutely. But essentially speaking, they, uh, what they did was 
they said, we cannot innovate. We cannot innovate. We can't create our own ministry. We can't create our own sacraments. We can't create our own Bible, etc. We will return. So the goal of Anglicanism is to proclaim for today the faith and order of the undivided Catholic Church under the Bible from the early church. Tyler. Yeah. Um, I know it's going to be a good question, so go ahead. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint you. Um, but uh, the Protestant Reformation yes. and the English Reformation, you could say that they both sort of formed as a reaction to the Roman Church and where that was going? Yes. Why did they go in such different directions? Because you just mentioned that the goal of the English Reformation was not to innovate, but the right. like, more like mainland European yep. Reformation definitely did. Yep. Was that sort of a conscious rejection of the entire church history, or was it more just the ignorance of where the Catholic Church had its roots? Right. And they just didn't a, a little bit of both. They happened at... Um, so basically, the Protestant Reformation and the English Reformation you know, basically happened at the same time. Why was the English Reformation, why was its outcome so different than the rest? So it's actually an excellent question. Um, and so as long as you can stay till 3 p.m., I'll answer it. <laughs> so I'll do my best to do it quickly. The Protestant Reformation of the continent, it's also called the Continental Reformation. The Protestant Reformation and the English Reformation are certainly related, but they are also distinct. So they have commonalities, but they're also distinct. Uh, on the continent, you had what was called the extreme or the radical Reformation. There were those who believed that the church, the Medi... What's that? Yes, yes. Good cheese, but, you know... Uh, radical reformation who you know and they were called the anabaptists and they basically said the church has become so corrupt and is so far gone that it, it cannot be renewed or restored we must start over and many with good intentions assumed that they understood what the early church looked like um, and so went that route but in doing so, they ended up rejecting not only the ordained ministry of the church because of such corruption in it. I mean, so you can understand their reasons for not liking it, right? It's been abused so badly. Um, but they also then uh, went against the sacraments of the church. And so, that, you know, and on and on and on. And so you had this radical. Then you had those who wanted to be uh, less radical, okay? Uh, and that, so you get the Anabaptists and then you get Swingley and then you get uh, Calvin, and then you get Luther, and it gets less and less radical. Um, but often what happens is that followers go more radical than their founders. So, for example, in modern-day Lutheranism, there's a movement among some Lutherans to actually uh, enter into full communion with us because they feel that Lutheranism, in many ways, has gone even beyond Luther. Um, and so th that's why. Anglicanism, uh, the real Reformation in England really didn't take place in Henry's time. It really took place under Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth I. And her intent was not to create something that resembled the continent, 
completely, nor return the church in England to Rome as her sister Mary tried to do, okay? Um, uh, but rather to steer a course between what she perceived to be the deletions of the more extreme Calvinist thought, which was greatly affecting the Puritans in England, and Rome uh, and the Roman Catholics in England. And so she said, we're going to steer a course back to the order, the, the faith, practice, and order of the undivided church, the early church, under the authority of Scripture as the highest authority. So it's not the Pope, so we're not Roman Catholics, Catholics who are ultimately under the Pope. We're Bible Catholics. We're Catholics who are ultimately under the authority of the Bible. And so it was really Elizabeth who should be credited with the English Reformation, I believe, and this attempt to... Uh, a lot of people hear what's called in Anglicanism the via media, to be in the middle, and that they see us as one big compromise. It's not what via media meant under Elizabeth. What she meant by via media in the middle was to steer a path down the middle between Geneva and Rome, which would lead one back to the early church under the authority of Scripture. And that's really where the term via media become, came from. But a lot of people sadly think of it as just compromise. You, you know, Johnny, and then we probably have to end. Yeah. Most of, our, most of our presidents in history have been Anglican. Yeah, so it's interesting. You know, we've done something wrong when people have no idea who we are, <laughs> including our own, our own people. I mean, if you were to say... How is it that we are evangelical and how is it that we are Catholic? It'd be very hard for them to articulate. Or did Henry VIII start our church? Many would say yes. And so this is why we're doing this course. You know. So the two things I want you to take out today is one of the quote I'm about to read from Lancelot Andrews uh, given to me by Praveen here. But then also the idea that at the time of the English Reformation all the significant changes which were made were not innovations. They were a return. Uh, a man in the 17th century named um, Thorndike, Thornton? Thorndike, Thorndike, said, had a saying, what we have received from the whole, only the whole can change. We have no authority to innovate. Okay. Um, and I'll bring that... Uh, uh, quote next week, uh, too. Um, so here it is from Lancelot Andrew. One canon, that is the official list of the Bible, reduced to writing by God himself. Two testaments, three creeds, four general councils, five centuries, and the series of fathers in that period of those centuries 
before Constantine determine the boundary of our faith. And, and again, that's very patristic too because it, it doesn't say articulates in any exhaustive way our faith, but establishes the boundaries. The early church wanted you to have some ability to dance within the boundaries of mystery, right? Uh, but there was boundaries set up. Um, my marriage vows with Christine do not... Um, uh, they're not exhaustive. It doesn't say, like, what to do for uh, having lunch if she's not with me, whether I can spend money, right? But, so, uh, there, there's some autonomy, very little, but some, right, within that. But the marriage vows establish boundaries within the covenant. And this is how the early church understood the creeds and the councils. They weren't meant to be exhaustive, but rather to establish boundaries so you didn't go too, wander too far from the truth and be lost. Okay, so uh, that comes into it. Also, in our booklets, if you take um, our booklets, uh, some, some week when you show up early uh, for church, if you look, there's a bunch of teachings in the back of why we do a lot of things we do. Uh, the architecture of the church, the sign of the cross, genuflecting, and so forth. But if you look on page 29, if we look at this, and I promise we'll be, we'll be done. In fact, I probably could have just read to you page 29, and we could have gone home. <laughs> okay, so sorry about that. 29, Anglicans are Catholic. We maintain and proclaim the Holy Scriptures. That is the Bible of the undivided Catholic Church of the first Christian millennium. And as I've said in my teaching today, we've often placed a, a real emphasis on the first 500 years. We maintain and celebrate this, the holy sacraments, for example, holy baptism and holy communion of the undivided Catholic Church of the first Christian millennium. We maintain and proclaim the biblical and creedal faith, that is, like, example, the Nicene Creed, uh, of the undivided Catholic Church of the first Christian millennium. We maintain and celebrate the apostolic ministry, that is, bishops, priests, and deacons ordained in the apostolic succession of the undivided Catholic Church of the first Christian millennia. Succession? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, it's here? <laughs> um. As Archbishop Jeffrey Fisher, Archbishop of Canterbury, 1945 to 1961, wrote, we, Anglicans, have no doctrine of our own. We only possess the Catholic doctrine of the Catholic Church enshrined in the Catholic creeds, and these creeds we hold without addition or dimin how do you say? diminution, deletion. I, I'll go with that. We stand firm on that rock. We stand firm on that rock. Lancelot Andrews defined the boundaries of faith and practice of Anglicanism as one canon of Holy Scripture reduced to writing by God himself. Two testaments, three creeds, four general councils, five centuries, and the series of fathers in that period. These determined the boundary of our faith. John Jewell, Bishop of Salisbury, wrote in 1562 in his book uh, called An Apology uh, for the Church of England, we have returned to the apostles and old Catholic fathers. We have planted no new religion. 
but only have preserved the old that was undoubtedly founded and used by the apostles of Christ and other holy fathers of the primitive, meaning early church. While we respect the Bishop of Rome, that is the Pope, and acknowledge his historic position in the church as Patriarch of the West, a position of honor, we, like the Eastern Orthodox Church, are not under his jurisdictions. jurisdiction. Anglicans hold to the biblical faith in order of the undivided Catholic Church under the, uh, uh, of the first Christian millennium. We may not preach or teach anything as necessary for Christians to believe for their salvation unless it is grounded in Holy Scripture, that is, the Bible. Thus, Anglicans are Bible Catholics. The Bible is our highest and final authority for Christian faith and morals. Uh, so, anyway, there's, uh, there's in our booklet, you have that. So. No, Jeffrey Fisher is dead. Uh, so I would ask if there's questions, but we've got a parish council meeting to get to. So uh, uh, I hope that uh, you do have questions. I hope you say, what? Or I want to challenge that or whatever, because this is what adult Christian education is about. Christians getting together and learning and growing and challenging. I mean, Joan's thing today about the difference of who can receive communion didn't pop in my head. She pointed that out, and it's an obvious major difference in how we practice our faith between Eastern Orthodox and Anglican. So these kind of things are, are, are good. Are good.